Dating back to the late 19th century, the Foster family was known for handmade running shoes, supplying world athletes like Harold Abrahams and Erica Lytle. In later years, Joe Foster and his brother, Jeff, decided to take the family business in a new direction, reaching a global market and competing with big players like Nike and Adidas. Fast forward to the 1980s, and Reebok became a global phenomenon with Hollywood stars like Jane Fonda seen wearing the brand. Foster's recently published book, Shoemaker, tells a powerful story of victory against all odds, revealing the hurdles of developing a world-renowned brand and building an empire from the ground up. Joe's tell-all guides young entrepreneurs looking to grow a small business into something sensational. Foster joined The Edge for an exclusive discussion into his entrepreneurial journey of establishing a presence in the global market. Listen on to hear his story. It all depends what you call an entrepreneur because I, I believe that an entrepreneur should be young. That's, you know, if, you, if you're older, then no. You've either made it or you've not. So people should be young. And if they're young, listening to uh, the experience of somebody else who's an entrepreneur, um, you, you're probably picking up a lot of history. Things have changed so much. When I started with my brother in 1958, we didn't, we didn't have calculators. We didn't have computers. You know? And because of that, I think what has changed now is technology. So... A lot of the things that I did will give examples of how I managed with my brother to start Reebok and to work our way through so that Reebok became, and we did, we became the number one sports footwear brand globally, but it became that one. Um, and in my early days, we were talking about influencers as we were talking about today. So you still need influencers. I mean, there are so many different businesses around, but if we're talking about the sports footwear business, which I, Reebok is part of the sports footwear business, then to grow your business, you do need to influence people. In the early days, we influenced performers. So we would give to performers and that would influence other performers. Now, the business is fashion. We're street, and because we're fashion, so many other influencers come along and other things that influence your sales and your marketing. Um, and I think today, anybody who is starting off your business today has got to look at technology. The technology in 1958 was very limited and, and it grew and it grew. But today we have, you know, we have social media, and uh, this, this is how you're selling today. The, the business has changed, <clears throat> but the, the big advantage of being young is you're growing up with computers. You know how to use computers. You know what social media is and online selling. You know that. So the difference between my era and today is you've got to use the technology. Otherwise, the principles are the same. You need it. You need to influence. You need to get to your market, and uh, 
with the sports market. That was done by providing footballers, sportsmen with your product, with your name on it. And that was the amount of visibility you could get. You got the visibility. So outdated methods, I don't know. I think it's just the same methods, but the, the technology's changed. And the technology now will lead you a different way. But the principle is still the same. Interesting. Rather than methods, I want to focus on the outdated thinking. Oh, we need to go knock on every single door in person, right? Get people to spread the word out that way versus, oh, let's just put a digital ad and that ad will be shown to a bunch of people. Not that neither are like, you know, incorrect, but would you say that um, there is one type of thinking that is a bit more useful now versus another type? We come back to technology again because there's nothing wrong with knocking on doors. A lot depends on your product and, and, and what your reach, what, what you need to reach uh, the market. Is, is your market global? With Reebok, it was global. So we needed that reach. Now, you can't knock on doors globally. That's, that's more of a local method of selling, which is, which is okay. If you've got a local product, uh, you can do that. <clears throat> but uh, I, I think that what you find if you're an entrepreneur um, is that when you get start your business, you've got to have some sort of thinking, where are we going? What is the, what, you know, what, what am I aiming for? It could be just simple. When we started Reebok, it was simply that the parent business, which was J.D. Foster and Sons, they, they forgot the fact that they needed to market the product. They thought the product was so good, it would just keep selling and selling. Well, it didn't because Adidas, they were coming in, they took the football market or the soccer market. And uh, Jeff and I, we noticed this. We, we, we've been away from the business doing national service. We came back and we noticed that they weren't selling the business. They, weren't, they, they were living on 50 years of history. Now, history is pretty good and it, and it can give you a product that, uh, that certain sort of uh, quality and recognition. But as, as the business changes, as the... Uh, world changes, you've got to change with it. And I, and I think today, somebody starting young, they, they've got to look at what did, what, what happened in history? What did those people do? How did they make it? And they, they use certain, like you say, sometimes knocking on doors. Uh, for me, it was going to athletics meetings, meeting people and finding the people, the people who were winning races, you provide them with shoes. So this is influencing. And in the, in the sports football market today, you still need to have performance. You still need to provide performance. And if you provide, and you, because that gives you visibility. A lot of people watch television now and you'll watch whatever it be, baseball, basketball, American football, or whether it's any as soccer. And, because of that, you see the name. So you get, you get the visibility of a brand and that's the influence. So for me, that's, that still exists. But right now, the sports business has become fashion. 
everybody wears now sneakers. Everybody wears sneakers. And, and everybody's, because it's comfortable. It, and, see, and then the influence now comes from entertainers. And so I don't think it changes anything from, from my days, just that the influencing and the influencers are different. They're, they're not just simply performers. Now they're performers in a different way. They're on a stage, it's music. And, and if that's where you've got to go to. So the thinking, and, and, and it's, it's social media, we can now use television, we can, we can use these Instagram and uh, LinkedIn, uh, lots of things that we can now use because you've got a different, uh, you've got a different medium to work with. And being young, I think the beautiful thing, beautiful thing about being young is that most young people like yourself can, can use this medium. <clears throat> and and that's, that's how things change. And, and I'm not sure what will happen in the future, whether this, uh, this medium will change. We look now on COVID. COVID has uh, been a terrible experience for many people, but for technology, it has brought along Zoom. We, we now speak as we are doing now. And uh, I was speaking earlier to someone in Saudi Arabia, sorry, in Dubai. And, and that's, that's what we can do now. When, when I was uh, growing the company globally, I, I had to jump on an airplane. I had a, a handful of uh, travelers checks and that was it. And when I got to my destination, I was very lucky if I could use the hotel to get a call through to, uh, to my factory. And today, now we have mobile phones. So connectivity has, has improved uh, everything we do. So it's, it's all to do with technology and technology will continue to change and continue to be, uh, well, well, business will have to change it to keep up with that, uh, that technology. Well said. Which part of running a business did you have the most difficulty with? <clears throat> Which part did I have difficulty with? Uh, well, I, I think the biggest problem that we had uh, was with the world changing. We had footwear production in the, in the United Kingdom. In England, we were producing. And so the difficult thing was to understand that to get the right prices, to work, to have a global market, you had to get the product at the right price. And to do that, you needed volume. So it's, it's, the, uh, it's the movement between just being a local production uh, company to then being a global production company. Because you go to the Far East and you can't ask for 20 pairs of shoes. You know, we're talking about using a, a production line, which is probably a, a thousand pairs a day on one production line. And so, so that's the volume. And it's getting between being a small company to growing into a larger company. So that was the hardest part was to get the production that we needed to, to, meet, uh, to meet the demand because we did a very good job of marketing the product and we, we hit the right people. Uh, and we, we had good fortune, aerobics 
was something fantastic, but it was seeing the moment. And uh, Arnold Martinez, who was our technical rep in Los Angeles, he saw that moment and that was great. So it was then taking advantage of it. And the difficult part was really to get the volume. Through your career, would you say there were certain things that were more difficult to do? Because that was like one moment, right? That was like one big moment, going from local to global. But for you personally, right, as an individual, what would you say was the most difficult part? You, you go through growing your business. And uh, it's not as though you can lay out a path. And that, well, I can do this and then move on and move on. No, it doesn't work like that. You do make that first step and then you've got to look around and you may have thought, well, I'll do this. Like you say, you make a plan. The plan is okay for six months. And after six months, you usually find out, why, why did I think I was going to do that? Why? You wrote, you wrote it down on a piece of paper. You, you made all the calculations <clears throat> and in six months time, it's wrong. But the good thing about it is that you, you know now that you were doing something wrong or that it didn't happen. So the good thing about making a plan is that it keeps you aware that that plan will change. And it a lot depends on many different factors. And you mentioned people and people are very important and it's meeting the right people. <clears throat> you make a decision. You, I spent 11 years going to America, going to the National Sporting Goods Show <clears throat> to exhibit my product and try to get distribution in America. I, I tried six times and failed. Mm -hmm. Whatever we did, we didn't make it. But I was trying to push my product into the country. And really what we find out is that the best way to do this is to get the country to want, want your product. So you, you have to find, in America, they call it the hook, probably doing Canada. <clears throat> You've got to find the hook. What really drags the product onto the market? And it's the influence. What influences? In that particular instance, <clears throat> as I say, it took me 11 years. My first trip to America was 1968, and it was 1979 before I got my distribution. And that's because over that period of time, we recognized this is a way to do it, which was runner's world. Running, running was becoming something big in the United States. And it was that market we wanted. But to get to that market, there were plenty of people. Nike grew with that market, Adidas, Saccone, you name it, Etonic. There was a lot of companies in there. But what we needed was somebody to want Reebok. And to get that, what we had to do eventually was follow Runner's World, who started to do in star ratings. They started to rate shoes. It, Runner's World really grew the, uh, the running business. They, they grew it big. And so they became very influential. So there was the influencer. The influencer was Runner's World. And if we could get a five-star shoe, in runner's world, if they would pick one of our shoes for five stars, that would be the hook. We did get that in 1979. We got Aztec, 
that was a five-star shoe. So that way we got to the market. And, uh, and, and I think that when you, when you look around, it's having to make these choices, whatever's coming next. When we started in 1958, Bob Anderson hadn't invented runner's world. So we couldn't say, well, when we go to America, we'll go and we'll, we'll make a shoe for runner's world. No, this, th these things change and develop. As we developed as a company, we had to see the opportunities. And the opportunity was that, and that got us into America. Interesting. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given? The best advice I was ever given? Um, I, I thought of an answer to this. It's <laughs> a lot of advice. Uh, and I think the best advice I, I could give or be given was you will always find those problems and be prepared. And if you can be prepared, then you will answer the problems because the problems should be there. You're an entrepreneur. You, what you've got to do is to get around the problems. If you're not an entrepreneur, you don't bother. You, you can't do it. But the entrepreneur finds a way around the problem. So it's, you know, the best advice you can have is don't listen to too much advice. Don't take advice as absolute. Just take it as something that you've got to listen to, but you've got to find your own way. And that to me was the best advice. I, I received a number of times from uh, people within, within the business mm. who, were, who were friendly. So it's, I think it is, is don't listen too much to other people. You've got to believe in yourself. I like that. So you've written a book, right? I think I can see it behind you. You can indeed, yes. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about it? Well, how long have you got? Well, <laughs> how long have you got? Yes, well, I decided to write the book about seven years ago because... Uh, my family business started in 1895. As I told you earlier, the problem is that the, uh, my father and my uncle, they were running the business and they didn't see that they needed to change. So <clears throat> I decided I needed to write a book. A lot of people had decided they, they knew how Reebok started. And I was reading on Wikipedia, Google, this is how Reebok started, and it was all, all wrong. So I had to put it right, so I wrote the book. And yes, the book is about the family. The family is uh, my grandfather in 1895, at the age of 15, he invented the running shoe, oh. the, the, spike, the spike running shoe. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. and uh, from his invention of the spike running shoe, he grew a fantastic business. I don't know if you've heard of the film Chariots of Fire. I haven't heard of that. Well, there are three famous British athletes who all won gold medals at the Olympics. And the film was about them, Chariots of Fire. Um, you've probably heard the music by Vangelis and uh, you're probably aware of that. But <clears throat> so my grandfather's business was, was really fantastic, but it was word of mouth. A lot of it was advertising in magazines and uh, um, <clears throat> going to events, running events, and he grew a business, which was very nice. His sons, unfortunately, didn't see how to continue that business. 
Um, maybe they went through two world wars and maybe that was too much for them uh, to then run a business on top of that. <clears throat> so Jeff and myself, seeing that the parent company was really a failing business, we, we set off uh, to make our own company and we started as Mercury Sports Footballer. We moved out of, our, out of the town to the next town and we started in a, an old building, very old building with very little money, but we started. And our ambition was to make a living. You know, we, we knew what uh, the sports business was. We knew people that we could supply. So that was our first ambition. You can dream. You can dream of being as big as Adidas at that time. But in those early days, it was to make a living. <clears throat> which would have been denied us in the, uh, in the parent company. That was really going out of business. So we started in a very small way and it was 18 months after being in the business, our accountant, he said, you need to register your name because okay, J.W. Foster was our name. All of us were called J.W. Foster, but of course that was the parent company and we didn't feel we could uh, use our own name. So we, we thought of Mercury. So Mercury is fine, but when it came to the idea we needed to register it, we found it was already registered. So we couldn't have the name. That, that brought about having to look for a new name. I went to a, was it a patent agent who, to help find a name. And he pointed through a window in his office and he pointed to Kodak and, I'm saying Kodak, well, why Kodak? He said, well, that's a made up name. And so that's easy, that's easy to register. So bring me, don't bring me one name, bring me 10. And you know, I'm, I'm confused at this point. Why bring 10 names? We only want one. Well, we have to test this against the register to see that it's clear that you can have it. So we sit around the table much like you were sitting around there, and we start to think, and we come up with names like cougar, or falcon, aggressive animals. But let me take you to 1943. This is in the middle of World War II. And nobody went anywhere, but we had local events, and I won a race at the local event. I think it was 60, 60 yards or 60 meters. And I went up to collect my prize. What did I get? I got a dictionary. And I said, look guys, where's the football? You know, what? eight years old and they give me a dictionary, but it was an American dictionary. So some of the spellings were different than if I had an Oxford English dictionary. Anyway, I like the letter R. I'm back now in 1960. I have my dictionary, which I won in 1943 at the age of eight. I like the letter R, so I'm looking through my dictionary. R, E, E, R, W, B, O, K. What's that? It's good. Sounds nice. It was a small South African gazelle. Wow. Gazelle. Put that at the top of the list. So with this list of numerous animals, and I, did, I had Reebok at the top, and I told the agent, look, We've got to be in love with this. It's got to be our passion because it's our business, our future. And he, he tried all these names and the, the only one that came out was Reebok. 
the only one that we could use. But they had to put us in part two or the B section of the register because the registrar said, if somebody comes along and wants to make shoes out of Reebok skin, you can't stop them. Well, Jeff and I didn't worry about that. We thought that's gonna be way out. However, 20 years later, the registrar came back and said, we've moved you now to the A part of the register because now everybody knows that Reebok is a shoe. <laughs> it's not an animal. So that's how we got Reebok. And uh, that changed our name after 18 months of business. After about four years of being in business, we actually got a letter from the Adidas lawyer. And our silhouette, our silhouette had two stripes and a T-bar. And they said that two stripes and T-bar infringed the three stripes. Well, for, for maybe five minutes, we were a bit destroyed. Oh. But then Adidas knows. Adidas think that, uh, you know, we're a threat. Why? Why would they do that? Adidas. So we were delighted. Adidas had uh, seen us. So what we did is we redesigned the silhouette and we came up with the, uh, what we see here now, the vector, which we think is a better, was a, a, a better silhouette. So that's in the book and uh, the growth, me going to America, spending 10 years trying to find distribution. Uh, we were expanding nicely in the UK and we had one or two overseas markets, but it was only when uh, we got the, uh, the five stars and at that point I met Paul Fireman and Paul Fireman became my gatekeeper and he was the man to set up the uh, American product, the American distribution. That was great. We were doing really well. <clears throat> and then, as I mentioned earlier, Arnold Martinez, who was down in uh, Los Angeles, his wife, she was coming home full of this new new thing, which was uh, aerobics. And at first, Paul Feynman didn't like the idea of doing something else because we were a running company. But Arnold got 200 pairs of shoes, he got them into Los Angeles, gave them to the instructors, and they loved it. Uh, they all love it. All of a sudden, that shoe became street. It was made specifically for women, and that Reebok became a woman's company. And we were in Los Angeles, Hollywood, Jane Fonda. She actually bought a pair to, to wear in her videos. She was making fitness videos. And mm -hmm. the rest is history. We just, the business exploded. It was fantastic. And we, we had a, a, a lot of Hollywood stars. They were not only wearing the shoes, they were coming to Monte Carlo, to Monaco, to participate in the pro celebrity tournament that we put on. Um, and, and it was fantastic. We even had Frank Sinatra there on one, on one year. So we, we had all the stars that you can imagine, um, John Forsyth, um, there's Charlton Heston, you know, all these people, they, they were just part of the brand. So the brand became very big and expanded. And the biggest problem we had was keeping up with the, how do you get so many shoes? We, 
when we started, we started with a nine million dollar brand. It was nine million. Then that went to thirty million dollars. From thirty million dollars, went to ninety million dollars. Then three hundred million dollars, and then nine hundred million dollars in successive years. So it was how do, how do you answer that problem? And I said the biggest problem we had was production. Not only had we got ourselves to Korea, but how do you how do you find enough product to satisfy an, uh, a revenue of nine hundred million dollars from three hundred million dollars? And we were lucky. At that time, Nike had been doing very well, but Nike, Nike hit a wall. They, they had a problem and they had to pull out of about three factories just when we needed the production. So that helped and that got us the production we needed. By the time we'd got to a $4 billion company, just short of a $4 billion company, <clears throat> I had put on another 30 countries around the world. I would, I was going around the world just building our distribution. I'd done that. And by the end of 1989, for me, the challenge had gone. We had a whole bunch of lawyers with a whole bunch of accountants and a lot of people selling and delivering the product. So it was time for me to retire. And so in 1989, I retired from uh, actively being in the company. I've never really left the company, but I just actively retired. And that's when the book finishes. How would you say you kind of manage or have managed your family and work-life balance, right? Because, you know, you're always in that need to be like, okay, go, go, go. But then you also kind of have to manage those relationships, right? So what have you kind of done to handle that? Well, when you, when you have a business like Reebok, Unfortunately, it does become your family. And it is, a, it is in itself a family. Um, when you talk about your personal family, um, <clears throat> my, my wife didn't, didn't travel with me until later on. She did travel later, but if you read the book, you'll find that that didn't work out quite as well as it should have done. Uh, <clears throat> and I, I think it's, uh, it, it's difficult. Because when, if the business is taking, taking you places, it demands you to be in certain places, you can't say, I'm not going, I'm not doing that anymore. Unfortunately, nobody waits for you. If you don't do it, you lose it. And, and uh, <clears throat> uh, we, we were having a problem keeping up with production and I would sit down with Paul Feynman and Paul said, look, Joe, I know how we can stop this because it was trying to keep up. I knew I was going to stop this. He said, but if, if we do, he said, I don't know how to start it again. So you have to be there. You have to, if the business demands it, you have to do it. And uh, that can, that can co cost a lot as far as your family are concerned. And, and, and I think it, it really depends how strong uh, your family support you. You know, and, and if they wish to travel, well, I was traveling an awful lot, going around the world about three times every year, just work, working on the distribution. And uh, so, yes, and it was a long marriage, it was over 30 years, uh, but I did divorce. And uh, 
Later, I married Julie, who you've corresponded with, and now we travel together. Uh, if anybody wants me, they have to take two tickets, and Julie comes with me to share those experiences, because <clears throat> some of the experiences are fantastic. Uh, I was invited into the palace in, in, in Monte Carlo, in Monaco, and to share a glass of champagne with uh, Prince Rainier. That, that sort of memory, if you, don't, you know, if you don't share that experience, it's something, okay, I can remember it and I can tell you and I can tell other people. But you know, it's, the best thing is if you're traveling together and you can share the moments, it's, it's much, a much richer experience. And that doesn't mean I didn't enjoy all the time I was with Reba. No, but sometimes you don't enjoy it, but the journey was fantastic. Is there any one thing that you wish you could do now that you weren't able to do when you first started your business? I think, I think those, you know, it's almost like having regrets. Regrets really, are, you know, there's no point with regrets. It's a waste of time. Anything we wish we could do now. Well, unfortunately, uh, I lost my brother just as we got to America. He died. We'd just got our distribution. So he never, he never saw the, uh, the real expansion and where Reebok went to. We didn't see that. And, uh, you know, you, you think, well, how can you change that? Well, you can't change it. So there are so few things that you can change. You've you got to remember that, uh, that Reebok became number one. We overtook Adidas. We overtook Nike. We became the number one sports brand. Now, when you say, what would you change? There's nothing I could change. But if I was starting a business now, I would, as we in fact started this interview, I would look to what we have here now, which is uh, technology. The technology has changed. So it would have been wonderful to possibly be able to spend more time talking to my distributors by, by video instead of having to jump on an airplane. So may, maybe if we'd have had this sort of technology earlier, it may have been a different life. I, I don't know. I, I just think it's, uh, it, it's a difficult one since you can't change anything. And I know that uh, if, if you've read Shoe Dog, which is uh, a Nike book, and uh, when, when he sort of tried to answer that, he, he would just like to do it all again. But again, you can't do it all again. You know, you've, you've done whatever you've done, that's it. So <clears throat> I think to, just to think that you could, uh, you could change something, I don't know. I, I don't know how you can, uh, you know, how you can actually think that and how it would change the result. Because, you know, when, when, you're, when you're making that journey, you make your journey and there are many, many opportunities to take a different route. You can go this. I... When I had the five-star shoe, or we're expecting the five-star shoe, I had Kmart, who were massive uh, retailers in America. They wanted to buy 25,000 pairs. And Paul Feynman also came along, and he was a small outdoor wholesaler. So he, there were just a few people in his outfit. Kmart was massive. Do I go with Kmart? 
And I could have gone with Kmart, but maybe that 25,000 pair would have been the first order and the last order. That would all depend upon whether the, the, the product sells enough in the square footage that they give you. Whereas to decide to go with Paul Feynman, I, I was more thinking on the person, you know, can I work with, with Paul? You know, would it, and that's the best way. The thing is, and throughout, it's all to do with people. Bottom line is to do with people. Not all the people you employ or you connected with are, are good. But if you have a, if you have a real handful, a real good handful of good people, it makes a big difference. And you, I think you, if you, if you read the book, you'll find I had one or two really helpful people who just keep you moving along, just keep you, just help you that bit. You know, they, they don't make massive things, but it's massive to you. And uh, so for me, I don't know. I, I, I can't say that I could change anything that would really significantly be possible. The things I would like to change are impossible. And that was the death of, uh, of, of Jeff and, and also my daughter. But uh, you know, that is life, that is the experience. So changing things, no. It's, it's hard. The only way we can kind of get the most out of it is just carry the legacy that we built with them forward right, and keep that memory going on. Right. What, right now you have the book. So now kind of, what, what are you focusing on next? Well, to be honest, we're focusing on selling the book. If you write a book, it's no point if it doesn't sell. So we need, we need to do, we need to market the book and we need to get the book read. Um, and I believe there are, and we, we get a lot of people uh, coming back and asking the questions about how we did this, how we did that, that the book in itself is, is a really good business book. I didn't write it as a business book. I wrote it as an experience. And just to tell people, this is Reebok. This is what we did. And, and apparently it brings a lot of messages over. I have people, again, usually they're single people who have just started up being entrepreneurs who find that there's a lot of a lot of messages in there that if they read it they, they read the problems but as a small company you know if, if you today run coca-cola then okay that's a very big company but you didn't start it <laughs> the man who started coca-cola is not available to tell you all the problems he had in his first mixing or whatever he did and so the benefits of me going to seminars, talking to people, is that they can ask me the questions, they can read the book, and they can, they can benefit from that, those first early days, that, the first day that we decided, Jeff and myself, to leave the parent company and to set up our own company. The problems and the fact that the problems are just, they're just there to make you stronger. You, even when you fail, and we thought, I was 23 years old, and Jeff was 25, and we left the parent company. And in those days, we were indestructible. We were young. What can go wrong? It's, you know, 
what can go wrong? We change it, we'll do this. So this is why I say an entrepreneur has to be young, really, because he doesn't have the fear. You know, you're totally fearless. It's, yes, yeah. Yeah. We, we can do it. And, and, and I think that is the, uh, the benefit um, for me anyway, standing up there and talking to people. They, you know, the people who haven't read the book, uh, we can talk about the book, we can talk about some of the experiences and hopefully they will buy the book and they'll be able to keep that as some sort of Bible which they can read again and just see how difficult things were. But the fact that we got a thrill, such an enjoyment out of that energy we put into a brand and the fact that it was 20 years before we got into America and it really took off. But the journey was, was a fabulous journey. The experiences were great. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think the benefits are for anybody who is starting off is young, that they can, you know, the experiences will be very similar. Where do you, how do you fund it? Where do you get the money from? I think these days, um, an entrepreneur has a better opportunity to, uh, to fund his business because you can write down a nice business plan and you can fund the business. Uh, and it's a, a little easier than when we started, but, uh, so yeah, it's, it's good to answer the questions from the experience, from right at the beginning to the successes of being in, well, being with all the Hollywood stars.